Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air again. You know, it seems like it has been uh, longer than just two days, uh, considering that was uh, how long ago I was last on the air with you all. But in that amount of time, I have been able to uh, prepare myself enough uh, for um, this next episode of Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. I saw where many um, many of you all, my listeners, had um, listened to the intro, and I think that's great because I know for a fact that all of you are going to be in for um, some unique uh, treats in terms of uh, new information that you probably didn't know um, before about lighthouses. But what I do know is that uh, we're going to be discussing in this uh, podcast episode of Brilliant Beacons about colonial lights. What do I mean by colonial lights? How about lighthouses that existed in the colonial era, or let alone the, the era of what we refer to as colonial America, being the period of, from the time when um, the first settlements in the New World were established, most notably like in uh, Jamestown, Virginia, uh, Plymouth Rock, uh, Massachusetts. And then, of course, you know, we can go all the way to 1733 when uh, Georgia was the last of the 13 colonies established. And of course, uh, the era of what we refer to as colonial era pretty much goes all the way up until 1776. How so? Because that's the same year that uh, not, that um, our forefathers officially declare their separation from England. So we're going to uh, learn about the uh, relationship between uh, the colonies in England, but we're also going to learn how um, people in general from a handful of the 13 colonies came together to uh, persuade their state legislatures to go about funding for lighthouses. So here we go, folks. Are you all ready for some um, fun-filled uh, information? I am. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and let's um, let's get rocking and rolling. What did uh, Samuel Clough of Boston, Massachusetts mention in the second edition to his popular New England Almanac in 1701? Now, I can tell you this much. I know Samuel um, Clough or Samuel Clough, however you pronounce his last name, is probably not someone uh, whose name would be uh, the first on the list of um, prominent people, but he does hold a unique um, position, or let alone a distinction, based off of what he has uh, mentioned in the second edition of his uh, popular New England Almanac. Well, here's the answer. Besides mentioning weather predictions and descriptions of the moon's phases, because usually, you know, that's something that um, farmers' almanacs do um, discuss a great deal of in terms of uh, how much snow certain regions like the United States would be expected to get. But Mr. Clough asked his fellow readers whether a lighthouse, whether a lighthouse on Point Allerton at Boston Harbor's edge was essential given there weren't any lighthouses in the colonies. So he is pro uh, proposing, or not just proposing, he's um, making people think long and hard about something that is not already in existence, but could have potential to be in existence 
and greatly benefit the people of Boston. I'm sure um, most of you are probably thinking to yourselves, have lighthouses been around longer than we think? Well, I'm going to get back to uh, Mr. Samuel Clough here uh, shortly. But here's my next question to you all. Prior to the late 16th century and into the 17th century when Europeans began establishing settlements in the New World, were lighthouses known to have existed? Yes. The first known lighthouse constructed occurred between 297 and 283 BC on the Greek island of Pharos, and Pharos is spelled P-H-A-R-O-S. This uh, lighthouse, being uh, they named Pharos, it for whom the lighthouse was named after Pharos Lighthouse. So the lighthouse is called Pharos Lighthouse, named in honor of the Greek island Pharos. And what's unique about this, the Greek island of Pharos is that uh, the island guarded, or the lighthouse as well, but the lighthouse and the island both guarded the entrance to the Greek city of Alexandria. The lighthouse alone stood 300 to 450 feet into the sky. The structure at the time was considered to be the world's tallest, rivaling the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Uh, for those of you who are listening who reside in Virginia, just remember there is a city in northern Virginia just on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., known as Alexandria. How does it get its name? After the famous Greek city of Alexandria. Not just so much the famous Greek city, let alone of Alexandria, but um, what I do know is that uh, Alexandria was named in honor of Alexander the Great, uh, who was a famous um, Greek uh, figure. Now, the Pharos Lighthouse was quite a unique achievement based on its design and engineering to where it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Over time, Pharos would become the official word for lighthouse. Now, uh, before I read this book a few years ago, Brilliant Beacons, I had no idea that Pharos was, in fact, the official word for lighthouse. I really didn't even know what what there was behind what there was word meaning wise behind the scientific study of lighthouses. As a matter of fact, um, do any of you all know what word itself refers to the scientific study of lighthouses? Phorology. That's spelled P H A R O L O G Y. Phorology. So that's the scientific study of lighthouses. As for people whom study or just have great enthusiasm for lighthouses, we refer to those individuals as phorologists. So we've got three tiers, folks. Pharos, the word for lighthouse. Phorology, the scientific study of lighthouses. To phorologists, people whom study or just have a great passion for wanting to know everything there is to know about lighthouses. Now, in the years after uh, the Greeks uh, constructed the Pharos Lighthouse, other Europeans, or let alone um, 
not just so much other Europeans, but other European civilizations followed uh, suit, being that of the Romans, the Spaniards, French, Italians, and Turks, all of whom built lighthouses along their coasts. So it, it's fair to say that many other European civilizations have been inspired by what the Greeks did, and they want to make a, a significant contribution on their end. And why not? After all, remember, folks, lighthouses aren't for just for, de they're not for decoration purposes. They're not to say, well, here, my lighthouse is better than yours. Well, yes, lighthouse, there are no two lighthouses that are alike, but the primary reason for why these lighthouses are built is to ensure the safety of ships coming in and out of uh, harbors or just let alone along the waters. After all, there has to be a way to ensure safety. Now here we go back to 1701 with uh, Bostonian Samuel Clough. In 1701, the year that Mr. Samuel Clough publishes his second edition of the New England Almanac, how many lighthouses existed worldwide? I'm going to give you a number. The number is between um, 60 and 85. Anybody want to take a guess at what they think as to how many lighthouses existed worldwide in 1701? The answer is 70. 70 does seem like a small number, but when you think about it, folks, in 1701, that's a pretty um, decent-sized number. And I can tell you this much, England was home to 14 of those lighthouses. Many people in the New World were familiar with lighthouses from a commercial standpoint, a.k.a. commerce. Well, as I said earlier, um, the like you know the Romans, the Spaniards, the French, Italians, and Turks, they all built lighthouses along their coasts, and it wasn't for um, decorative purposes, but it was more from a commercial standpoint in their eyes. Commerce, you know, goods are flowing um, in all directions, but in order to ensure that um, ships make it from point A to point B safely, you have to have something that's not too far away, but it's in mid-range or even up close that will guide ships whether it's during the day or during the night they have to ensure some kind of safety why had Samuel Clough become so adamant about building a lighthouse at Port at Point Allerton For starters, Point Allerton is located in the town of Hull, which is at the tip of Nantasket Peninsula, extending into Boston Harbor, which meant that it had become a central focal spot for all vessels entering the harbor. Secondly, it had become over time more and more difficult to enter Boston Harbor due to its multiple islands and shoals. Anybody want to know what a shoal is? I'm sure some of you know what a shoal is, but I have no doubts there are those of you who don't know what one is, and that's okay, and I can give you all that answer. A shoal is a sandbank, or let alone sandbanks within waters with less depth. In other words, 
shoals can be found in uh, shallower uh, waters where oftentimes um, a ship's crew can uh, misjudge the depth of the water to where once the ship hits a shoal, the uh, bottom can flatten out to where cargo is lost, to where the ship itself becomes no longer uh, salvageable. Lastly, ships that were arriving into the harbor day and night had their fair share of challenges. So during the day, if a lighthouse was present, the tower could be viewed as a landmark. When I think of landmark, I think of something of historical significance. But during the day, if, if a ship can view a lighthouse and refer to it as a landmark, they know that, uh, for one, they are um, getting closer to land, but two, the landmark itself is um, greatly, uh, it's not so much greatly, it's um, automatically visible. But come nighttime, the lighthouse itself serves as a beacon, leading ships to safety in the midst of the, of the middle of the night. Not just so much the middle of the night, but in the midst of, um, of darkness. So, during the day, a lighthouse is a landmark, meaning it's, it's visible, as long as there's no fog in sight. But during the nighttime, while, yes, a lighthouse can still be visible, it has to have uh, some kind of lighting to ensure that visibility is good, to ensure that ships can still make it into a harbor safely. So, we have to remember, folks, that harbors, like Boston Harbor, is not a nine-to-five facility. Ships are coming in and out of the harbor at any given time during the shipping seasons. The lighthouse at point, if a lighthouse were built at Point Allerton, it would also mean that Boston would be heading in the right direction to becoming a world-class city for maritime trade and have an edge over other cities in colonial America whom didn't have one. Anytime a city or a town can have an edge, uh, that is a very good thing. Of course, sometimes it may not always be a good thing, but hey, somebody's got to take the lead here to uh, go about constructing a lighthouse. After all, if you have more business coming into your ports, that's always a good thing, but in order to ensure that that as a result of more business coming into your port, you've got to ensure that ships are going to be safe, not just one time around, but they're going to be safe all the time. So, what year, what year marked the first um, attempt? I don't know if I would say it was an attempt, but, but what year did it actually go through where um, a group of um, individuals went before the Massachusetts legislature to propose a lighthouse being built at Boston Harbor's entrance. Go to the year 1713. That's when a group of, Mo of Boston merchants went before the Massachusetts colonial legislature to propose um, a lighthouse at Boston Harbor's entrance. You know, it's interesting in the year 1713, well, first off, um, only one of our forefathers, or I should say prominent forefathers, was born before 1713, and that was Benjamin Franklin. He was seven years old, but 
what many of you all probably don't know is that Benjamin Franklin himself is a native of Boston. Of course, when I think of Benjamin Franklin, I always think of him in Philadelphia, but I have to be reminded more often than not that Benjamin Franklin himself was a native of Boston. But yes, Benjamin Franklin would have been about seven years old when uh, the uh, when the Massachusetts uh, legislature took up the uh, proposal on, from the merchants um, as to going about getting a lighthouse constructed. However, I should point out that um, getting a lighthouse constructed just didn't happen overnight. But within a short period of time, come July 23rd of 1715, two years later, the Massachusetts legislature passes an act to build a lighthouse within a group of islands adjacent to Boston Harbor. The lighthouse was built on Little Brewster. Now, there is a town in Massachusetts in Cape Cod known as Brewster, and that's not too terribly uh, far away from Hyannis, where my wife and I stayed uh, nine years ago. But Brewster just in case any of you all didn't know, Brewster was named after a passenger, who a, a famous passenger who um, was um, on the Mayflower that came to um, Plymouth uh, Plantation in 1620. His name was Elder William Brewster. He would also be Plymouth's first preacher. So I think it's fair to say that if you were uh, one of the first preachers of, of your new colonial settlement and you did a good enough job, which he did, why not have a town or a village named in that person's honor? And why not have the lighthouse uh, be built around uh, Little Brewster Island, which isn't far from Boston, but hey, the, um, you know, the lighthouse has to go somewhere, but it's got to be in a, what I would say, in a good central spot so that uh, ships coming in and out are going to be able to recognize its presence for safety reasons. Now, July 23rd, 1715 is significant because that's when um, the lighthouse itself will start getting built. But it's not until September 14th of 1716 that the Boston Lighthouse is officially lit, becoming America's first lighthouse. This lighthouse is 60 feet tall and it was um, and its bottom was composed of granite but on top of the stone tower stood a 15 foot tall lantern room matter of fact with the uh, spiral staircases where the innkeepers would go up and down but Remember, folks, here we are in, six, in 1716. We don't we have electricity, but remember, we don't have modern-day lamps. When I think of electricity in the colonial era time, I often think of um, individuals um, carrying a um, candlestick, not just a candlestick by itself, but, in, but placed in a candle holder where the um, head patrons of the household would be uh, coming to check in on their children before they um, before they um, t went uh, went to bed for the uh, night. Of course, you have to remember we didn't have light switches back then. But but when I think of electricity in the 18th century, 
in the house, I always think of a, a candle, a lit candle, that is. But as for uh, this lighthouse, um, Boston's uh, the Boston Lighthouse at Little Brewster Island, I think of um, I think of something different. It turns out that either candles or crude lamps were used to burn the whale or fish oil as the source of lighting. So we have to remember, folks, we're using a variety of different sources of um, means to light the lighthouse. Uh, we don't have Fresnel lenses just yet. I can't wait to talk to you all about those, but that will be um, later on. But we, we're starting off with uh, whale as well as fish oil. It may sound odd to think that we are using whale oil, but hey, we don't know any better at this time. But what I do know is that if you go to Nantucket, Nantucket by this time is, has become the whaling capital of the colonies, or let alone of um, British North America. And it remained that way up until um, the very end of the uh, 18th century or into the early parts of the 19th century. And one of the reasons, long story short, why the whaling industry in the end went bust in, Nant in Nantucket was because they, um, whale hunters spent so much of their energy um, hunting whales in the area to where they pretty much depleted their uh, sources. In other words, they never allowed for the whale population to have time to repopulate itself. And if you want to learn more about that piece of uh, history, um, I read a good book some years back called, it was written by Nathaniel Philbrick, um, that has to do with a, a ship known as, um, it was titled Into the Heart of the Sea, meet, with the uh, tragedy of the uh, whale ship, the Essex. That will give you a, a very, very uh, strong um, understanding of um of just how dependent um, the people of Nantucket were on the whaling industry itself, but how the town or the island itself never recovered once um, that whaling industry was no longer uh, viable in its um, in its primary um, locale spots. Now, um, many of you all are probably wondering, okay, now here we are, 1716, um, the Boston Lighthouse is officially open in the sense that um, it's open for um, to aid the navigation of boats or let alone vessels coming in and out of the harbor. But somebody's got to man the place. So who was the first keeper of the Boston Lighthouse? George Worthy Lake is his name. Ironically, he held other posts such as being a harbor pilot to herding sheep. He didn't hold the position long. Sadly, he and his wife, including a daughter, all lost their lives in, in November of 1718 due to Mother Nature's unpredictable wrath. So remember, folks, even during this time, you know, yes, it's one thing to be the uh, innkeeper of a lighthouse, but that doesn't mean that Mother Nature won't throw curveballs at you and your family that could either that could either result in a make it or break it um, scenario. So, uh, what did George Worthy Lake's successor, being Captain John Hayes, implement into use that became another first for the colonies? 
he implemented or um, had had um, developed what was known as a great gun. What do you all think, in this case, is the great gun? How about a cannon? And this cannon would require occasional firing when necessary to warn ships away from Little Brewster and its nearby shoals when visibility was greatly reduced. So, you know, yes, it's great to have a lighthouse, but even when visibility gets reduced, uh, lighthouses alone aren't going to be enough to uh, prevent a ship from steering uh, close to shore where um, they end up hitting a shoal and the ship, um, the bottom of the ship flattens out and the ship is a goner. So how about firing a cannon when necessary to warn ships away from getting too close to what would be nearby shoals or just let along the uh, coastal shoreline? What other problems did, Boston, did the Boston Lighthouse confront? Well, in the years of 1720 and 1753, the lighthouse saw fires destroy its um, structure. How so? Well, I mentioned fires. How about um, accidentally knocking over a, whale, over a whale oil lamp? Okay, think about it. It's very easy to knock a lamp over. And what happens? The whole structure catches on fire. And then how about forces from above, like lightning? And what is lightning? Um, you know, lightning's not something you play around with, but how about lightning striking wooden structures? Yeah, that were easy targets for uh, lightning strikes. Because think about this, folks. If a wooden structure gets hit by lightning, the whole found the whole structure itself from bottom to top can go up in flames in a matter of seconds. So, yes, it's very unfortunate that the Boston Lighthouse had seen its um, unnecessary shares of um, tragedy, but despite these um, unfortunate circumstances, you know, we still have to forge ahead and 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 not surrender, because if we surrender, then we're not doing the... Um, the ships any favor that are coming in and out of Boston Harbor because after all they are uh, dependent upon the lighthouses um, safe the, the light they're dependent upon the lighthouses um, mean uh, guidance for getting to and from uh, port safely were the populations and economies of the American colonies expanding rapidly at the same time the Boston Lighthouse first came into existence? Yes. The success can largely be attributed to ports which became, or let alone just to ports themselves, which became centers for colonial trade and finance. You know, it's one thing to um, deliver goods to the port. It's another thing to uh, pick up goods to ship out but it's all but the ports themselves are a great way to establish uh, financial ties not just short term but long term prosperity was very um what do you call it prosperity existed everywhere amongst all the colonies and it can, was attributed to maritime commerce and over time the demand for lighthouses would become greater so 
the more business you have um, in, in any of the 13 colonies, I think it's fair to say that the greater the likelihood that you probably are going to need um, something that will help ships coming in and out of port have smooth, navigable sailing at all times. And what can be done to, um, how about I say it, it may not solve everything 100% of the time but it could help mod it could just help modify things in many ways a lighthouse is the answer to that problem given uh, that money alone is required for any kind of uh, governmental uh, project regardless of whether it's local state or federal level of course we didn't really have anything called a federal government in the 18th century. That is before uh, going before ever considering uh, separation from England. But while yes, money alone is required for any kind of government project, what did all the colonies resort to with help from their legislative bodies regarding lighthouse construction? Well, we already know that uh, merchants in Boston went before their mass went before their legislative body to propose having a lighthouse be built, and that went through. And while that still is doable, there is another way that which I learned about when I first read the book, and of course had to be reminded of it. Um, how about uh, turning to a lottery system? And I'm not talking about picking up lottery tickets like we th like we know today when we go to a gas station, you know, where you can play blackjack and win up to a thousand dollars. No, I, that's not what I'm getting at here, folks. But a lottery system, I can point out to you all, is that um, this was a very popular system that was used for a variety of purposes, but it was a, a system or a means or let alone just a way to go about raising money to pay for something in the case of lighthouses. In other words, like a public works project. Well, how about we a good example of where uh, one of the 13, well, a handful of the 13 colonies were successful. But I would like to uh, point out um, a couple in particular that really, um, that really uh, were successful. One in particular uh, didn't have to wait long for their uh, success to to have been seen. How about uh, Connecticut, or let alone a uh, place in Connecticut known as New London, Connecticut? New London was home to Connecticut's number one port, and in 1760, merchants and shipmasters went before their legislative body to request a lighthouse being built, and it wasn't so much that they requested the lighthouse be built they asked that funding for all that the entire funding for the construction alone be used towards um, that it go towards the lottery in other words we're not going to ask you all the legislature to come up with the money but if we go about funding if we go about construction funding through a lottery then we can go about um, getting the um, this project fulfilled. Well, the lottery project was so successful that it led to 500 pounds raised. I'm not sure what that would be the equivalent to in today's American dollars, but I, what I do know is that 500 pounds raised was a lot of money. 
and the lighthouse itself was completed one year later in 1761. It was a 64-foot tower. It had a base of about 24 feet in diameter, and its stone walls were 4 feet thick. Well, this is what I call a good example of, um, I guess what you call bipartisanship, but a good example of where everybody came together on the same page to benefit that led to a greater um, progress where uh, the port, being that of New London, uh, would be able to thrive, uh, not just from an economic standpoint, but from, uh, but from one that enhanced the safety of all vessels coming in and out. Now, in 1760, does anybody want to take a guess which city in uh, colonial America becomes the, the largest uh, city? I will give you a hint. It's not in the north. It's not in the south. It's right in the middle. When I think of uh, the middle colonies in the colonial America era, I tend to think of like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and uh, Delaware. Does anybody want to know uh, which, um, which of the colonies, along with a city, was considered um, to be the one that was the largest? Not just in the middle colonies, but that of colonial America. How about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? It was, in fact, the largest city in the 13 colonies, and Philadelphia played a pivotal role in, co in the coastal trade um, industry, serving as a north-to-south um, terminus uh, location. So, in other words, you've got goods going north from Philadelphia to New York or Boston, and then you've got goods going southward from, say, Philadelphia to Baltimore or Philadelphia down to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia. So this uh, north-south terminus was a perfect location for distributing goods. And what made Philadelphia even more unique was that it was a haven for religious tolerance. After all, the Quakers were very well established. And while, yes, we would like to think that the Quakers were... Um, were good people the whole time, I will have to admit to you all that um, the Quakers weren't always perfect. They had their flaws, but then again, I don't think any religious sect has ever been 100% perfect. But if you read um, a book that I read not too long ago by Thomas Fleming called Washington's Secret War, uh, The Hidden History of uh, Valley Forge during the... Um, the winter campaign of 1770, 1777 to 1778, you will um, read information about the Quakers that will shock you. Information that uh, most of us probably never would, never would have thought uh, would have been true, but, but there were some unpleasantries that um, did come as a shock, so I will uh, leave it at that. But nonetheless, Philadelphia is a... Um, a uh, solid uh, haven for uh, religious tolerance. But it's also become a city where immigrants are coming in left and right. And as a result of that, it, this has made the city itself America's main port of entry. Now, as for uh, Philadelphians wanting a lighthouse, that was a, um, an interesting challenge. They did, it did come through, but it was not an easy one. In 1761, um, the merchants took matters into their own hands 
by conducting their own lighthouse lottery. You know, they went before the, the colonial legislature of Pennsylvania, but the legislature just wasn't interested in this. Okay? So if your own legislature doesn't want to take interest in this, then you've got to come up with another plan B option. And that was to um, come up with their own lighthouse lottery. And while not successful right away, come 1763, the merchants, the merchants, I will say this, they did raise uh, 2,260 2, pounds. That must seem like a lot of money for its time. I, I wish I knew what that was in American dollars in today's time. But that amount of money that that the uh, merchants did raise, they went about giving it to the Pennsylvania legislature to go forward with building a lighthouse. Hey, you know what? Raising 2,260 pounds worth of money is better than none. So you know what? The legislature would have been foolish to have not taken it. But they did take the money, and by November of 1765, a stone structure lighthouse was finally constructed. It stood between 69 to 87 feet high. It was completed at Cape Cornelius, also known as Cape Henlopen, and this is now located in Delaware. Now, I must point out that at one time, Pennsylvania and Delaware were operated under the same government due to you know, both states, you know, bordering one another, but they had a uh, contractual agreement where uh, for a period of time they would be governed under one, um, under one um, ruler in the sense that, um, that Delaware agreed to be uh, governed by uh, Pennsylvania. Now, as I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, you know, Hey, you know, we've talked about a northern colony being Massachusetts. We've talked about, as well as Connecticut, we've talked about a middle colony being Pennsylvania. Did any of the southern colonies get on board with the idea, or let alone the, the, the need to have a lighthouse? Yes. As a matter of fact, South Carolina was the first southern colony to construct a lighthouse. However, the origins for a lighthouse in South Carolina dated back to 1673, three years after the colony was founded. And I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, you know, we have South Carolina and then we have a North Carolina. Whom could they have been named after? I mean, they were both named after, well, I take it back, they were named after the crown. It has to do with the crown of England, but South Carolina's capital for a long time um, was uh, Charleston. And Charleston was named after uh, King Charles II. So, uh, Charleston, um, as I said before uh, a moment ago, the, the origins for the lighthouse in South Carolina date back to 1673. But it took just over 90 years before Charleston finally got its first official lighthouse, which took place, which was officially um, dedicated in 1767, two years after uh, Parliament uh, had passed that infamous Stamp Act, taxation without representation. The lighthouse that was um, built in Charleston, South Carolina, was a 115-foot was a tower with a gilded ball, welcoming ships in and out of uh, the port of Charleston. And by the mid by the midway point of the uh, 18th century, Charleston had had become um, Colonial America's fourth largest city. 
and probably the number one uh, port, not just in the South, but in the top five of, um, of uh, cities in colonial America. So it's good to see that um, everywhere in colonial America, you know, the, the northern colonies have their share of lighthouses. The middle colonies have, you know, some lighthouses and the southern colonies have have a lighthouse or two. So we've got um, it's very well diverse, which is a good thing. But I think many of you all are going to be surprised at what I'm going to ask you all next. How many lighthouses total were built in the 13 colonies under British rule? I'll give you a hint. It's well below 50. It's even well below 25. The answer is 10. 10 lighthouses, folks. That doesn't seem like a huge number. On the other hand, 10 might be better than none. But that's that was the only um, number of existing uh, lighthouses in colonial America under British rule. What was the, uh, do any of y'all know what was the last lighthouse built under British control? I didn't know this one until I read the book. And I don't expect many of you all would know, but that's okay. I'm going to tell you now. It was Thacker Island Lighthouse in Massachusetts that was the last to be built under British control. It was um, built in the early part of 1771, and it was completed in December of 1771. It turns out that a fellow man by the name of John Hancock, who was a powerful Bostonian merchant and ship owner, spearheaded a committee that drafted a lighthouse bill which passed in April of that year and and towards the end of 1771 being on December 21st that lighthouse itself was officially lit now when i think of john hancock i think of him as a signer to the declaration of independence i also think of him as the head chairman of the Continental Congress. After all, he uh, took the place of uh, Edmund Randolph, a prominent Virginian who uh, sadly died in Philadelphia. And had Mr. Randolph not died, his signature would have been the largest on the Declaration of Independence. So when you see John Hancock's signature on the Declaration of Independence, just remember that he took the place of a Virginian who unfortunately passed away but that's not to say that John Hancock himself was a fine patriot. On the other hand, many of you all would be very surprised to know that in 1760, I'm sure some of you already know this, but for those of you who are new to my podcast, John Hancock was the only one of our signers whom signed the Declaration of Independence that actually saw King George III be officially coronated as king in in October 1760. Of course, little did we know in 1760 that that in in a few years after the king's coronation, most notably starting in 1765, that the king's ungrat that the king's subjects would go from being um, unified to being um, ungrateful. But just keep in mind whenever you think of John Hancock. Just remember that he was the only one of our forefathers who actually saw King George III be coronated. 
As Thacker Island Lighthouse neared completion in late 1771, the relationship between England and her 13 colonies was not, was not anywhere where it was, say, 20 years beforehand. The bond itself was coming apart very quickly, or rapidly. How so? Well, a lot of it could be attributed to uh, Parliament's passage of legislation that left her subjects without a voice, or let alone proper representation. How about pieces of legislation ranging from the Stamp Act, taxation without representation, the Stamp Act placing um, taxes and duties on all things paper, the good news was that Parliament did repeal the Stamp Act in early 1766, but what did they do instead? They passed another piece of legislation that went into effect a year later, the Townshend Duties of 1767, which placed uh, taxes and duties on lead, paint, glass, paper, and most of all, the tea. And then to make matters worse, a year before 1771, you have the infamous Boston Massacre, where five civilians lost their lives, and while as tragic as it was, we must keep in mind that the Boston Massacre did not happen in just one night. Most of us were told for years that it was just an isolated incident where people, meaning the bystanders, were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but I must uh, point out that 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 history has gotten that one wrong, and if those of you who want to learn more about the Boston Massacre, uh, two good books that I've read, are uh, I strongly recommend, are uh, Boston's Massacre by Eric Hinderaker and Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials. As a matter of fact, those of you who, who have been with me since June of last year uh, would remember when I uh, first did uh, Dan Abrams's uh, John Adams Under Fire. But we must keep in mind that 1771, yes, it's a great milestone knowing that another uh, lighthouse has been um, built in colonial America, but we must keep in mind that it's also the last one that will be um, built under British rule because um, England is already starting to lose control over the 13 colonies, and King George III views his subjects as being ungrateful. They don't want to um, adhere to anything that Parliament passes. So basically, you know, it's just a short matter of time before the tinderbox, before the box itself, or let alone before things erupt even more to where um, any, any attempt at reconciliation may no longer be viable. So prior to firing the shots heard round the world in April 1775, lighthouses played a vital role with regards to economic growth and making maritime commerce safe. Lighthouses alone served a form of independence. Once the bond between England and her 13 subjects no longer appeared salvageable, lighthouses themselves went from welcoming ships into their harbors to instead becoming military targets. Well, when you declare your, if you want separation from England and everybody comes together, and towards the end uh, leading up to July 4th of 1776, 
and when 56 men signed their name onto a document declaring to no longer have any allegiance to the crown, I think it's fair to say that you're not, you're not just risking certain things, you're risking it all. You're putting your own life on the line. And that also means national security is on the line. Lighthouses, I think it's fair to say that even lighthouses themselves are a form of uh, national security. After all, you know, for so many years, you know, British ships were coming in and out of our ports. And, you know, 1774, you know, we issue, uh, what do you call it, uh, boycotts in response to the coercive acts. In other words, we are putting a one-year ban on prohibiting uh, British goods from coming in and out of colonial America. So obviously our ports are going to be affected by this. It's bad enough that Parliament closed the port of Boston in 1774, but at the same time, you know, the other colonies came to Boston's aid. Thomas Jefferson instituted a day of fasting. Uh, other colonies sent goods to the people of Boston. But the bottom line is this, folks. It's one thing to declare separation from England, but you are also having to be willing to give up everything else. That includes fine commodities that you would have had greater access to uh, coming over from England, like leather. You know, think about it. There are very few, like in Colonial Williamsburg, we, we've been told that um, while, yes, there were shoe shops in Williamsburg, they weren't able to produce um, the same kind of leather and shoes alone on the same scale as in England. How so? Well, towns and cities have greater populations in England versus Williamsburg, Virginia. So it's one thing, again, it's one thing to declare your separation, but when you declare your separation, you're giving up everything else that goes with um, your um, past prior allegiance with the crown. And that also means, that also means trade, goods coming in and out of England. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, today, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time with you all. And when I am on the air again next, we're going to be talking about uh, the American Revolution, given that now uh, the lighthouses have are, are going from welcoming ships into their harbors to now becoming military targets. Thank you for listening, and um, continue to stay safe. And I look forward to being back on the air again next. Good night.